Well, it's good to be back, church. Um, hey. I, yeah, honestly, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't expect to be this emotional, but Tim hit the first chord this morning and I started crying. So, thanks for that. Uh, um, so, I'll give you a little update. Um, Tim, would you grab my table for me? Um, surgery went great. Fully uh, successful. I will, uh, they, they got the, the entire thyroid removed. I'll, I'll go back this next week. Uh, on Wednesday and do some blood work and they'll kind of make a determination if I need to do any more treatment, that radioactive iodine treatment or not. So, um, you know, I'm praying that I don't have to do it, but if I do, it's a pretty straightforward uh, process. Uh, might knock me out for a week, but um, it's, it's a pretty straightforward kind of deal. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm deeply rejoicing. I did want to tell you one, uh, one story about, about this process. Um, first time I, when I met with the surgeon, he recommended that I just take out uh, half of the, the thyroid because there was you know, a nodule they'd found that was clearly cancerous, but I had nodules on the other side, and they hadn't biopsied those. They didn't know if they were cancerous or not. They were pretty small, and so he said, I think we should just take out half the thyroid. We'll leave the other half, and we'll just keep, kind of keep watching it. Um, and you know, I, I walked out of that, that uh, appointment, and I thought, I just don't know if I feel good about that decision, but I don't know how to make the decision because... Um, the, the surgeon that I have is probably like the best in the world down at MD Anderson. I mean, he, I discovered he, he does, does like 350 to 400 of these surgeries a year. So like he's the best of the best. Uh, but I, I didn't really feel comfortable with that decision. And so I, I was walking in our neighborhood praying. I said, Lord, I don't even know how to pray. And I've had a few moments. I don't know if you guys have, have had any of these before. They're not, I don't have lots of these moments, but I had a moment where I just I said, Lord, I just need you to tell me what to ask for. From you, right? And so um, I was just walking, and I felt like the Lord just, I'm, I'm not a super mystical person, but I wish that I were. My wife's super mystical, you know, but I just had this moment where I just felt like the Lord was impressing on my heart. Ask me for this. Ask me that, that all of your friends who are in the medical profession would have exactly the same opinion. That's what I want you to ask me for. So I asked the Lord for that immediately. I said, okay, Lord, line everybody up. Uh, that they would all have exactly the same opinion. So uh, I began, I sent out a few texts, and I sent out some emails to my medical friends. Uh, first text came back in 15 seconds. I swear to you. It was like, boom, boom. A uh, really good friend of mine, doctor that I trust, he said, take the whole thyroid. And then over the next few minutes and hours and just days, it was just like one after another. Boom, 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 boom. Everyone had exactly the same opinion take the entire thyroid. So I just, I had a lot of confidence going in, just, you know, I'm going to do the whole thing. I, I informed the doctor's office um, that that's what I was going to do. So, you know, day of surgery, I showed up and um, a doctor asked me, he said, so, you know, I understand you want to take the whole thyroid and I'm recommending that we just take half the thyroid and just want to know, you know, what you're thinking. And I will tell you, so, you know, at that point in time, I didn't tell him that all of my medical friends had the exact opposite opinion. I I just, I thought, you know, that just seems a little, a little rude. Plus he's such a great doctor, whatever. But, you know, I, and, you won't be surprised if you've heard like one message from me before. Like I like data. So I'd gotten online and I told him I did some research and I didn't look at WebMD. I actually pulled up journal articles, right? So I said, well, here's the data. You know, and I went through the data on recurring surgeries and all this kind of thing. And he, you know, one, one particular data point, I said, well, you know, 20 to 25%, you know, people have to have this second surgery and this and that. And he goes, well, actually, it's, it really is probably 20%. But yeah, okay. He said, okay. He said, I just had to check. Because um, some people haven't really thought through the issue. Um, so I said, well, that's, that's what I'd like to do. 
well, you know, a week after surgery, I came up to do, came back to do my follow-up appointment. He, we finished the whole appointment, and then he said, oh, and by the way, um, you did have cancer in both sides. You know, and it was funny, because even after the surgery, driving home, I just, I just felt so much confidence and peace that God had led me. And Tim and I were just talking this morning about, you know, those times when you feel like God's silent. And I've had those moments where it feels like he's silent, and I really want guidance or direction. But then I've also had a few moments where I feel like, man, God just spoke, right? And, and those moments remind me that he's always with me. He may not be speaking exactly how I want him to speak in each and every moment, but he's always with me, and he's always guiding. And so, you know, I just want to tell you, you church, thank you. You know, thanks for praying. Thanks for, uh, we got a lot of gifts and cards, and I even got some photos from friends and um, uh, gift cards and, and just constant uh, affirmation that, that we were not alone in this. And I just want to, want to thank you for all of that. Um, so thank you. Really glad to be back. Yeah. Um, thanks. So... We're going to start the semester in the book of Malachi, and, and I'm not depressed, right? That's, that's not why we're going to the minor prophets. Uh, yeah, Malachi, you're like, whoa. Okay, uh, I just, th- this, this last book of the Old Testament, uh, it just has a really great message, I feel like, uh, about our hearts and exposing where our hearts are. So we're going we're gonna to look at the book of Malachi for the next four weeks. And, uh, you know, to a large degree, the, the book of Malachi is about tough love. You know, you've heard that phrase before, right? Tough love, which just sounds horrible, right? Or uh, loving discipline. You know, just, ah, it's just a horrible sound to it. When, when you're the one under the discipline, it doesn't feel loving at all. Um, and, yet, and yet that's what it is. You know, I remember with my kids, I, I, don't, I don't recall them ever running up to me and jumping in my arms and hugging me and kissing me saying, oh, daddy, thank you for this painful reminder of your love, right? It's, it's, not, how, it's not how it feels, right? The book of Hebrews says, uh, all discipline for the moment feels not joyful, but sorrowful. And yet it's, it's still love. And so the book of Malachi actually begins with this affirmation. The Lord says, I have loved you. And I'm going to geek out on Hebrew grammar for just a moment. It's a perfect tense, which means I have loved you in the past, and I continue to love you. And I'll always love you, right? I have loved you. I am, I am for you. And God reminds them of that from the very beginning because he's about to say some things that are really difficult and challenging and will expose the condition of their heart. So when God says to them right at the beginning of this book, uh, this, this letter, I have loved you, they go, eh, I don't know about that, <laughs> Right? It doesn't, it doesn't feel like you love us. I want you to read with me chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel, through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and rebuild. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. God says, I love you, and the people, says, people say, uh, we doubt it. Why? Uh, why did they doubt God's love in this moment? 
I'm going to give you several reasons this morning, but it's the uh, same reason we doubt. First, we doubt when our expectations are unfulfilled. We, we have uh, our own love languages, right? We have ways that we expect God to express his love toward us, and he doesn't. We have expectations about how life should move forward for us, and it often doesn't happen. And, you know, I've, I've observed through, through my own life through the years that expectations are these really funny things. I often don't know I have the expectation until it doesn't happen. And then I go, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> that's, that's not how I thought things would turn out, um, you know, I didn't get married, I was almost 31 when we got married, and that's not what I expected. I thought, you know, you'd graduate from college, I'd have a girlfriend, get engaged, and there we go, we're done. And then, then I ended up waiting like 10 years. It wasn't what I expected. And then Tristy and I got married, and I expected that we'd make a decision to have kids, and then nine months later we'd have a kid, and we didn't. It's, it just didn't work like that. We had four years of infertility, and then we had our son, and we had miscarriages, and I mean, we just, it was, and then Anna Joy came along, but it wasn't, it wasn't none of it was easy. It was just a it wasn't what I expected. So I expected I would make a decision that I was really in control of, and if God needed to participate, he would just do what I expected him to do. And then it didn't happen. I'm like, well, wait, what? And we all have these expectations. It might be an expectation for something that you would gain materially or physically or your health or a promotion, or a relationship to start, or a relationship to heal. If these expectations, and it doesn't happen uh, as you expect, or when you expect, and you go, wait, God, where are you? You said you love me, but it doesn't feel like you love me. So let me put this uh, in context historically, this interaction between God through Malachi and the people of Israel, just so we can set a little bit of context. Jerusalem and uh, its temple and the city were destroyed in 586 B.C. And the reason that they were destroyed is because the people had become idolatrous. They were worshiping all the gods of the land. And because of their idolatry, they had become like their gods. Whatever you worship and set your affections upon will change your, your heart, it will change your behavior. And so they begin to abuse the land. They, they worked the land constantly because they became very materialistically bound people. They didn't give the land its Sabbath day or its Sabbath year. They didn't let it rest. They're driving, driving, driving. They're driving their, their servants. They were abusing the poor. They were taking advantage of uh, political relationships around them rather than trusting in the Lord. And God said, you know, you're not a light to the nations. This is my place from which I want to show my glory to all the nations. And you're not doing it. So he uprooted them. He took them out and he brought them to Babylon. And allowed the Babylonians to destroy the city of Jerusalem and to destroy the temple. But he promised them that they would come back. So in 538, the first return, the first wave of Jews came back into Israel because of the decree of Cyrus. You want to read that decree, you can see it at the beginning, first chapter of Ezra or the last chapter of Second Chronicles. And he said, any Jews who want to go back and they want to rebuild the temple and worship, well, I'm going to help you out, I'm going to supply for you, and I want you to make offerings in my name so the people went back. They laid the foundation in 536, but there were people around who'd seen the first temple, and some of them just wept. They're like, really? And they were uh, opposed by the people of the land, and they got discouraged, and they stopped. Stopped building. So God sent Haggai and Zechariah to stir up the hearts of the people, and they said, build. Let God be worshipped from this place. And so the people got back to work, and in 520, The work resumed. Five years later, they completed the temple. 
And then a new king was in place, Artaxerxes, and he said to his servant Nehemiah, you know, I see the distress in you. Go back to your city. Rebuild the walls. Nehemiah went back and he rebuilt the walls and he instituted all kinds of reforms in Israel, all kinds of spiritual and practical economic reforms as well. But then he left. He went back to Persia. And as he departed, the people fell back into this spiritual apathy. And the reason they fell into this apathy is because God wasn't coming through for them as they expected. Right? It was miraculous that the promises were fulfilled and they were allowed to return and rebuild the, the temple and to rebuild the walls, but they were still struggling in the land, right? There were literally enemies still in their midst who were opposing them constantly. They were still under foreign domination. They were not a free people. They're still paying exorbitant taxes. Their crops are still struggling to come up out of the fields. And so they're looking at their, what's happening to them, particularly materially. They're not experiencing the prosperity they wanted. And circumstantially, they're under trials and tribulations. They're struggling. And they're saying, God, you say you love us, but how? Right? Our expectations about how you should love us are not being fulfilled. And we all have those moments, don't we? This is how I think life should work and will work. And then it doesn't. And we have to stop in that moment and examine our own expectations and and say, you know, do I really understand what God has promised me? Am I really looking to the right place to find affirmation that God is genuinely for me? Or am I doubting his love when I should be celebrating his love? So first, we doubt God's love when our expectations are unfulfilled. Second, we doubt God's love when we disregard our own responsibility. You know, sometimes um, life just happens to you, right? I don't, I don't think that I sinned and therefore got cancer, right? I don't. I don't think that there was a, a specific unconfessed sin, and so boom, God got me. I, I can remember um, when I was in high school, I was playing basketball, and I, I sprained my ankle, and that's what I thought. I thought, okay, what did I do? I must have done something. You know, and then through the years, your theology develops a little bit, and you realize, you know, this is a broken, fallen world. And things happen to those who follow Jesus, and things happen to those who don't follow Jesus, and it's not necessarily connected to the choices we make. On the other hand, sometimes I, I've made choices. And there's a result of that choice, and I'm suffering the consequence. But often I'm in denial of that. I don't really want to accept the fact that uh, I made this particular bed that I'm lying in right now. And so what God's going to point out to the people is that they're ignoring the fact that they are holding some level of responsibility for their current circumstances. Let me make a couple observations here. First is this. The name Malachi means my messenger. This is not Malachi's message. It's actually God's message to the people. Malachi is just the mouthpiece. Second, what he's bringing is an oracle, or a better translation is is literally a burden. The the word in Hebrew means something that has to be lifted up. Malachi is the messenger, but I can promise you Malachi would have preferred that someone else be sent. They're, they're, every prophet is a reluctant prophet. Like, right? There's not a line out the door saying, I want to sign up to be a prophet. Nobody wants the job. Right? Malachi is not excited about the message that he gets to deliver because the message of the prophets is almost always, hey, there's sin in your life and it needs to be dealt with. 
So it's called a burden. It's something that has to be lifted up. It's heavy. It's burdensome. And Malachi's got to deliver it at their doorstep. And he knows anytime a message like this is delivered, there's a good chance that the people won't be excited to see him. But he's probably going to lose some friends over this. Third observation is this. It's a message to the people of God, not against the people of God. God is for them. And their own sin is destroying them. So God says, let me help you move away from that which is destroying your lives. I am for you. Let me add a little bit more historical context to this. Uh, The book of Malachi actually is set within the context of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah pointed out some specific sins to the people regarding marriage, Sabbath, and worship. And so all the people got together and they made promises. They said, you know what, you're right. We're not following God in these three areas of marriage, Sabbath, and worship. We promise to live differently. And so Nehemiah uh, instituted all kinds of reforms and the people began to follow God. But then Nehemiah left town, he went back to Persia, and they broke the promises. So in Nehemiah 13, you have this record of the promises broken. Worship, Sabbath, and marriage. Same three are addressed. Same three are addressed. Then God raised up the prophet Malachi, and he addressed these problems once again, but specifically just worship and marriage. So what's happening is this. Uh, Apparently they were observing the Sabbath, but they're just going through the motions. And they were worshiping, but they're just going through the motions. Their heart was not there. And you know, God doesn't doesn't care about that, right? It's really not an issue of of what the animal itself when they were bringing an offering or, or the specific amount of money maybe you put in the plate. Or, it's, it's all about your heart. Right? And God sees in their, their behaviors an attitude or their heart is not for him. So the people are saying, God, how have you loved us? And God's going to turn around and say, well, I kind of have the same question for you. Because you're just going through the motions of worship. And your marriages, you're allowing them to crumble. You're not honoring the covenants that you have made, which reflects, again, a heart that's far from me. And so Malachi steps in to address these specific issues of sin in their lives because they've been unwilling to acknowledge their own responsibility. And we all do that, right? It's, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty typical pattern. What happens is we get angry at God because we've, we've shifted the blame to God himself, right? This is, this is God's issue. This is God's promise. This is God. God is not uh, coming through for me. We, we shift blame. I, I, I know this well because I'm, I'm the younger child, right? Which is hard in some respects because you don't get the privileges and so forth. But also, there's some value in being the younger child because the older sibling, my sister, was uh, expected to be more responsible, right? So they would leave the house. My sister is in charge, which means I could kind of shift the blame for maybe any irresponsible behavior that I did while she was gone, right? She should have been watching me. I remember one time I was carving something down in the garage and I slipped and I cut my thumb and, you know, blood all over the place and my parents got home and I got all comforted and I was like, yeah, but she should have been watching me, right? (laughs) We all do that. We we shift the blame. Great story uh, that illustrates this. Several years ago in the uh, Canadian Journal, there's a story about a lady who uh, got drunk at an office party and on her way home, she wrecked her car, and so she sued her office. She sued the company. Right? She sued them. They said that you should not have allowed me to, to get drunk and then to drive home drunk, even though they had offered to call her a cab. She refused. They had offered to get her a hotel room. She had refused, but then she got in her car and she drove uh, drunk and she crashed her car, and then she sued them. The crazy thing is the court awarded her $300,000. 
But is that not crazy? Whose responsibility was it? What was hers? Now, a more encouraging story is this. Um, (laughs) College student who uh, was in his dorm room, and he was leaning against the window, making obscene gestures to the students who were passing by, right? (laughs) And, And the window broke, and he fell out. The window's three stories. He survived, but he got pretty banged up, so he sued the school. Because they should have provided a more safe environment, you know, windows that would, you know, not break from mooning, whatever. You know, it's like, seriously, dude, he did not win his case, which I'm like, thank you. Really, who's responsible here? That's human nature. Adam, what have you done? The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. It's really, this is, this is her fault and it's your fault. And we inherited that. So what confession does for us is it's like allowing God just to take off our lenses. He cleans them. We look back in the mirror and we say, oh, you're right. And when we see ourselves as we are, then we can see God clearly. And here's the principle. We can't see God clearly if we don't look at ourselves honestly. Honestly. But when we look at ourselves honestly, we see God clearly. And then we begin to understand how God is working in our lives. Third reason we doubt God's love is that we overlook the evidence of his love. I want you to turn back with me to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord says, I have loved you. But you say, how, in what manner have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now this is a tricky passage. Uh, What does it mean that God loves and that God hates? What does it mean that God loves Jacob and the nation that would come through him, Israel, and he hates Esau and the nation of Edomites that would come from him? Well, sometimes... uh, Love and hate can be uh, emotional words, right? They they can refer to affection, but not always. Uh, In this context, it's referring to a choice. Let me illustrate. Jesus said something in in a similar vein. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus wasn't talking about emotions here. He was talking about a choice to prioritize. Put me above all other human relationships even above yourself. Now, did Jesus love his mom? (laughs) He's a great son, right? Remember, he's hanging on the cross, and there was one person he was particularly concerned about. He turned to John, one of his disciples, and he says, do you you see this woman? She's now your mother. Take care of my mother. He loved his mother. But when his mother and his brothers showed up at his doorstep thinking he was crazy and trying to pull him away from the will of God, what did he say? That's not my mom. My mother, my brothers, my sisters are the ones who do the will of my father, right? The will of the father would be above all. It's a choice to prioritize. God chose Jacob to be the channel through whom God would bless all of the world. And God says, to to the people of Israel, how do you know that I love you? You know that I love you because I chose you. And on what basis did God choose Jacob? Because he deserved to be chosen? 
No, I mean, if you look at Jacob as an individual, he's a shady dude, right? I mean, he's a really shady character. His name means deceiver, right? His parents, he came out and go, okay, we got a name for this one. All right, I mean, they could just feel it, right? Just felt it from this child. Name him deceiver. And that was the course of his life. I mean, Esau, if anybody would get chosen, it should be Esau. He's the firstborn, first of all, but also he comes out all rugged and ruddy in appearance and he likes the outdoors and he likes to hunt and fish and kill things and eat them. Right? I mean, it's like, that's, that would be the one to choose. No. Because I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose the, the deceiver. I'm going to choose the deceiver. Because he deserves it? No, he actually doesn't. There are others who would seem to be much more worthy. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. There was nothing in Jacob individually or in these 12 sons who were completely dysfunctional that came from him, or from this nation that was small and powerless, God chose because God wanted to bestow his grace on this people through them as the least God would see, people could see God can love anyone. God can love anyone. And so he reminds them of his gracious choice. Second, God reminds them of his protection and his preservation. Let's read again verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And yet you say, how have you loved us? Or in what manner have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, right? And Edom is the nation that came from Esau. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, love is a choice to bestow this blessing on Jacob through whom God would bless all of the nations. Love is a choice. Even as you saw in the book of Deuteronomy, I I chose to bestow my love on you. I chose you. Love is not an emotional term in this context, nor is hate an emotional term in this context. God chose Jacob and through Jacob to bless all the world. He didn't choose Esau to be the one through whom all of the nations would be blessed. So Jacob can't take the credit. There's nothing in Jacob that deserved to be chosen. On the other hand, Esau has to accept some level of responsibility. Remember the story. They're twins in the womb. But Esau was the firstborn. And as a result of him being the firstborn, he had all of the rights and privileges of being the firstborn. But he didn't really think that there was much value in the promises that God had given his father that he would inherit. So much so that when he came out of the field and he was hungry, and Jacob had prepared a bowl of soup, he said, you know what? I value a bowl of soup more than I value the birthright. He didn't value it. He didn't care. So Jacob had promises given to him. But he couldn't step back and just trust God to get those promises. He had to deceive and go to get them. Esau had promises given to him because he had the birthright. He didn't care about them at all. He didn't really believe that what God offered was of any value. And so he disregarded birthright. Esau was responsible for that. He gave it away. 
He gave it away. What's interesting in the story of these two brothers is that um, personally they reconciled. Remember, Esau was incredibly angry. But later they would reconcile. After their father was dead, they would come back together, they would reconcile. And so even in the law, as Israel was in the wilderness, uh, they've been redeemed out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and God is sending the law through Moses. It says in Deuteronomy, don't ever despise your, the Edomites. Don't, don't despise them because they are your brothers. Right? They're your brothers. So in fact, that was one of the first groups of people that they encountered. As they came out of Egypt, the most direct route out of Egypt and into the promised land would be along the king's highway through Edom. And so they came up to the border of Edom and they said, we're your brothers, we're here, God's given us this land, we're back. Can we just pass through your territory? And the Edomites said no. And they said, please? This is the most direct route. Look, we'll stay on the highway. We won't go into your fields and eat any of your crops. We won't even go to your wells and drink your water. If our people take anything, we'll pay for all of it. Can we please come through? They said no. And they amassed their army to destroy Israel. They had to go out around. Later in their history, the Edomites along with the Philistines would raid Israel and they would burn their towns and take their crops and they would uh, steal their people and put them into slavery And so over and over and over again, the Edomites demonstrated they didn't believe God's promise to bless all nations, including the Edomites, through them. They just rejected God, rejected God, rejected God. And so what's being described here was the natural consequence. Their nation was was oppressed over and over and over again. The Babylonians came in and took some of them away. And then they tried to rebuild. And then they were conquered by the Greeks and then the Romans and then the Nabataeans. And consequently, their civilization was gone. And and so God comes to Israel and he says, look, you have no more right to, to still be here other than the fact that I have chosen to preserve you. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6 of Malachi. The Lord is speaking. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. If you want to memorize one verse out of Malachi and say, I memorized a verse out of Malachi, (laughs) that's the one. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The reason that you're still here is because I'm faithful. Not because you deserve to still be here. Because I'm faithful to my word. I always keep my promises. So, how do we know that God loves us? But it's really tempting to to look at our circumstances. right? If, If God really loved me, these are the things that would happen. These expectations would constantly be fulfilled. How do we know that God loves us? Romans chapter 5. Paul said, but this is how God shows us. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, that's it. Just, that's it, just that. What you look to is the cross and the empty tomb. In that while we were yet sinners, Jesus hung on the cross and he looked at those who had driven nails through his wrists and through his hands, who had beaten him and whipped him and scourged him and tore the flesh off of his body. And he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And he looks at each and every one of us running our own way, trying to figure out life on our own, sometimes living in open rebellion, sometimes living in passive indifference. And he says, I love you. You know how I love you? I put my son on the cross to pay for your sins. And then I raised him from the dead so you could have life that lasts forever. And you have hope that all of those expectations will actually be reshaped and reformed and completely fulfilled in me. 
I promise. And you know that I always keep my promises. Because I raised Jesus from the dead. And I will raise you, and I will give you life, and I will give you hope, and I will give you peace. And you will have all of those longings of your heart that you can't even express fully. They will be fulfilled because I always keep my promises. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You can trust me. Fourth reason. We doubt God's love when we fail to look beyond ourselves. Let me read to you again, verse 5, chapter 1. Your eyes will see all of this, and then you will say, The Lord is magnified even beyond the border of Israel. Uh, God is doing something in the world, and he wants to include us. He wants to include us. But when we run after other things and let the affections of our hearts be set on other things, he can't include us in all that he's doing in the world. And so... He uh, steps in, and sometimes he has to, to discipline. He has to speak those, those words of tough love uh, so that our lives can be shaped around following Jesus and helping others find Jesus because God's doing things that are eternal uh, in your neighborhood and within your family and in your workplace right now. And God loves you too much to let you miss out on that. And it's tempting sometimes to just look at each and every one of our circumstances and to evaluate God's love in that respect. But he says, no, the, the way that I prove that I love you is that I gave my son for you and that I don't leave you alone afterwards. <laughs> I just keep coming after you. So here we are, launch a new year, 2019. And some of you may be like, yeah, man, I love the beginning of a new year and I set all my resolutions. 2018 was awesome, right? Everything just worked super well. And I'm really excited about 2019, and I want to say, man, way, way to go for you. Uh, that's really wonderful. God is for you. That's your message this morning. God is, is for you. But there are others of us who probably are limping into 2019. We go, oh, man, that was a rough year. I want to remind you God is for you. God is for you. And what a great way to start the year, knowing that no matter what circumstances lie in front of us, God is for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, lift up our eyes to see what's actually uh, happening through you in our lives and all of around us. I pray that we would cling to this hope, this promise, that we would trust your goodness because of the cross that you are for us. Father, thank you for giving us these moments that kind of reset our, our perspective on our lives and on the world. And we can be reminded once again that you love us and that you're for us. We thank you for this through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you again next week. God willing, I'll be back.